there are uh, some insights in here that would even, in my judgment, uh, be helpful as we uh, start this new year. Anybody realize yet it's a new year? <laughs> Anybody put 2014 on their checks still? <clears throat> yeah. You know, <clears throat> I, I always try to try to remember what year it is uh, now, and uh, that, that is often a challenge. Uh, and so I, I'd like to look at John 9 under the idea of some insights, and we started last week, and I hope that a couple of those we talked about last week about Jesus really caring for people in need, uh, <clears throat> caring about you, and not just living life by asking a bunch of questions. I want to pick it back up here in this, this event, but you know, I got to thinking about insights uh, <clears throat> that we get uh, as we go through life. Hopefully, as we go through life, we actually gain in some insight. Uh, <clears throat> I remember some years ago when I started teaching school, oh, I was years ago, but a student started bringing uh, laptops and tablets and phones to class. There was a time when that didn't happen. Uh, <clears throat> I can't remember when it was, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> all of this technology and all this stuff, and, and I never ever got the insight that I had to actually put something in my syllabus about this. Because the first year or so, I would be teaching and, and going along, and all of a sudden, I, you know, uh, you're, you're lecturing, and students are typing, and they're doing this. Now, my insight is they're not taking notes, <laughs> right? <clears throat> they're not taking notes, or, or as, as they're sitting there going, while I'm talking about very important stuff, you know, the student beside him is going... <laughs> So one of the insights that I've had over the years is I now have at the university as a document they put in, I call it technology etiquette. Isn't that a great way to say that? <laughs> technology etiquette. So now, because of having some insight about what's going on, I had a person come to me one time, you know people are shopping while they're in class, and I said, hey, you know what, you can take my class one of two ways, seriously or over, and uh, <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the two, it's, you know, I just guess you have to decide. Uh, so I decided with this technology etiquette document, and I rolled it out uh, this semester, and students are so happy. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I said there, now, if you're going to bring your tablet, bring your, 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 your uh, computer. However, Stanford University has done a study to indicate one of the insights they've gotten is that students or people that use laptops and tablets or other electronic devices have less recall than those who write with a pen or pencil. We know that there's some imprint that begins to happen as you write along. So I know that, and so that's in the document. And I just told him, I said, look, uh, if you're using your laptop or computer, that's fine if you want to. Take your notes. Here's what happens. The minute class is over, you have to email me your notes. Yeah, they, had about, they didn't have that reaction. <laughs> yeah, you just have to email me your notes. I want to see them. Or if while we're in class, the professor is talking and asking questions, and I call on you and you can't answer it, you're absent. And those count. Now they're getting insight <clears throat> into how this class will go this semester. So we've all been enlightened in many and wonderful ways. Uh, but, uh, you know, it took me a while over the years of saying, okay, I've got to have some insight how to deal with this monster called technology. Do you know they did a study the other day? They said most of us who have iPhone or uh, smartphones, uh, they're smarter than we are, that we check them somewhere around 31 times a day. 31 times a day. There's some 
insight into this that they're beginning to suggest that some of this technology may become addictive, that we can't let it go. Uh, we, we were out at a restaurant the other day. Becky and I were actually talking to one another and uh, <clears throat> looking at each other, and we look across over, and there's a couple, and they're both. I, I mean, I've, I've been at a table before. I, Greenland and I were sitting where one time, and we did, did we do that? Oh, I'm afraid I'm, I think I did this in church back before I was a Christian. And uh, <clears throat> he texted me something. I thought, you know, Dick, we're sitting right beside each other. That thing probably went to Virginia, rerouted back through Dallas, came here and hit my phone here in the sanctuary. But we brought, that was before we were Christians. So we didn't do that. But Insight. Uh, Charles Swindoll is a guy I like to listen to. And I, he, has a, he has a program called Insight for Living. And I've listened to him for years. Uh, insight for Living. Well, I, I think in this uh, passage, it, it, you know, you would probably say, Cliff, every uh, conversation that Jesus had brings insight. But I, I want to look at this under this idea because I think there's some insight here that we may have looked at and gone over and, and maybe want to back up a little bit. And I kind of left you teasing you last week about it because I just couldn't get to it. But in John chapter 9, where this story is told where Jesus is leaving apparently the temple area and disregards his own safety, and uh, having had an attempt on his life, is willing to stop and heal a blind man. That's pretty remarkable to me. It's interesting, again, in verse 2, the disciples ask him when they see him, they don't think about, how can we help this guy? It isn't apparently, how, what can we do for this guy? How can we help this beggar? We know that because of verse 8. How can we help? They say, well, Jesus, who sinned? His mother or his father or himself? And Jesus takes a pretty straightforward answer here. And I want to I go at this on the insight uh, if you will, on the first one you have there is this first insight is, whoops, i got too many buttons I'm pushing. The big question and answer. The big question. Uh, you know, <laughs> there have been several books been written. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> you know, that's a bigger question sometimes for me, is the idea that there is this kind of prid, uh, quo prid quo, I probably just said that, or karma or, or something that the, the universe is sort of a spiritual slot machine. You put a good thing in and you get a good thing out. Or you put a bad thing in and you, you get a bad thing out. And I, this is a big question because over the years as I've worked in ministry with people, when things happen or difficulties, the question is always, why did this happen to me? I was walking out of class the other day with a student and we'd been discussing some of them. They said, you know, that's been the big question. Why did this happen to me? Why did it happen to me? It's the big question because they asked, did, did this person sin or was it his mother and father? And I told you last week, and Jesus says this, is neither. That this man sinned nor his parents. And then there's this conjunction here, but. There's a contrast here that Jesus on this big question, I think, is trying to answer. But, okay, it wasn't his mother and father it wasn't he himself. There's another answer here. Now, I want you to notice that here, what it says. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one works. While I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, this is a big question that these guys want to have answered. Is the universe like that, Jesus? That when somebody sins themselves or even their parents that it continues to generate. There's some Old Testament kind of teaching that sort of pushes this forward and, and, and at least uh, lends this idea. And Jesus says, no, it was neither of them. Now, this way you read this, but 
it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, let me, let me uh, stop here for a minute. Uh, I think I got this on. Yeah, it shows me here. One of the challenges of this passage has to do with uh, where is the proper punctuation beginning and ending. Now, I'll just show you this. This is, uh, this is actually John 1.1 1, 1. In, the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. You, you've recognized it, right? That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, in the New Testament, the documents are written in what we call unseals, are all capital letters. And this is what the documents look like. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I learned uh, Greek script, which is a capital letter, small letter, capital letter. It's a little easy to read. This is a little more of a challenge, but I can see this, that this word right here, E-N, means in, arcane, beginning, was, that's the uh, uh, pronoun there, the word. Uh, and anybody that has any training in that would, would be able to see that and, and work through it and kind of, you know, labor through it. Like that. Let me show you in English. You know, you can do that. It's like this. Now, close your eyes because you're seeing me write it. <laughs> you know, you can, you can parse that out. You, you can see in all of those capital letters that there is some, if you will, coherence to what that's being said. You could do that if you had some capacity for Greek. Uh, you would do that if you had some capacity for Spanish. And so all of the New Testament documents are written like this, in unseal form. Uh, they're, they're, they're jammed up together because writing uh, materials are very expensive. They're not at the ready, uh, and uh, it's pretty tough to, to get those materials. So they want to jam everything they can and these uh, parchments together. There's another thing that is a feature of this, again, that I think helps us to understand this, and there is no punctuation in the original documents. None. It's understood. It's assumed. It's as people are, are working with it, they know where a period is and where, where a, there, there are signals in here. And that, 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 that's kind of just part of the struggle we're in. So let, let me suggest uh, two renderings here. I want to be fair about this. One way of looking at this statement when it says, neither his parents nor he did, it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is the idea, the, the, the notion, or some theologians would say, that in some sense that God created this guy blind so that he could declare his glory and wonder in the world. Um, most of those theologians that did that were not blind at the time. <laughs> so it was fairly academic. But the idea that God had made this guy blind or had created him that way or allowed him to be that way is a possible explanation uh, for some. Uh, I have a little heartburn with that. I'll show you why here in a bit about that. Uh, this is consistent with Reformed thought, Reformed theology, if you're uh, John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, some others. It's, a, it, it's consistent with uh, what is typically taught as Reformed theology. Uh, if any, anybody heard of the Westminster Catechism? Yeah, Westminster Catechism, shorter, longer, you know, the one for your pocket or something like that. But, you know, the Westminster Catechism. The Westminster Catechism asks this question, number seven, it says this, what are the decrees of God? What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He is foreordained whatever comes to pass. Whatever. Without restriction. So whatever comes to pass in the universe, it is the eternal purpose of God according to His will. 
So this guy was created blind because that's what God wanted. The person is born with a birth defect because that's what God wants. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest with you say, uh, there, there's a lot of people that have subscribed to this notion that God's sovereignty is understood as micromanagement to the extent that everything that happens in the universe is the will of God. Uh, it's a very difficult position at times to, to manage or work through. So it's that this idea that this guy was born this way so that God's power or glory could be shown. Uh, that's good because the guy finally gets his sight. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's wonderful, you know. Uh, but it creates some heartburn for people, doesn't it? Some idea that God, who is love, or God, who is this or that, uh, would, if you will, uh, do this and cause this, and that everything that happens uh, is uh, the eternal decree of God. That, again, is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'll give you my little read on this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you an alternative here. Um, you know, whenever we read the Bible, we read it to the best of our understanding and try to read it with some uh, coherence. And I, I think that John Calvin, who I've read, is a great guy, and, and I like some of his stuff. I'm sure he's thrilled about that. You know? <laughs> I'm sure he's just, wow. Uh, you know, I'm a gnat on the theological world compared to uh, John Calvin. I would suggest to you, though, that one of the things uh, that uh, helps me understand Reformed theology and Calvinism a little better is this. Calvin believed that God's fundamental characteristic was his sovereignty and power. That's what he believed was God's prime, uh, I mean, it's called primitive nature. It kind of goes with the job description of being a God. You know, you're in control. It kind of goes with that. And, and Calvin's beginning point seems to me to be that he begins with the notion that God is all-powerful and almighty, and I say amen to that. In addition to that, Calvin seems to me to be dealing in the context of, if you will, of a, of a situation in the Reformation of the 1500s in, in, in uh, Europe in which he is trying to correct some understandings about salvation, about where does it come from? Where does it come Where, where is salvation? You, you might think that's a silly question, but in the 1500s, there was a church in town that said it comes from us comes from us. And if you don't participate in the six means of grace, the Roman Catholic Church would say, and you don't play ball with us, you're out. Right? Excommunicate you, you're out. Uh, <clears throat> there was really uh, not much other going on in the world, except for a few reformers like John Huss and John Wycliffe and others. So <clears throat> Calvin was trying to decide, where do you locate salvation? Do you locate it in a church that says if you play ball with us and do what we say, we'll extend it, or can they take it away from you, right? You get out of sorts with us, you don't live the way we say, we're going to take it away. Calvin, I think, actually correctly locates salvation as the gift and the matter of God, right? I mean, we're all with that, okay? Here's where I think it gets a little off. But I think that Calvin then causes the understanding of God to be principally understood as powerful. And I want to suggest to you, Jacob Arminius makes this observation, that he believes that the primitive nature of God is not power, love. God's love that is exercised in power. Yeah, Stan. Well, I think it's the result of an attempt to know who we're dealing with. 
I mean, I, I would say, how dare them to say, this is it, nobody else can explain it, nobody else is here. But I think it, it, it's at least a question to beg to say, how do we relate to a God? How do we know what he's like so that we can? I, I would agree with you in the sense of saying, hey, uh, one person's got it all figured out. That's it. See you later. That's it. That, that is arrogance beyond belief. But it does seem to me to be necessary for us to understand, how can I know this God and how can I relate to him? Now, I think that these are two starting points. And I'm just going to suggest that, 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 that Calvin begins with a God of power, which I think is in some sense necessary to understand. And I'm not saying God isn't powerful. I'm simply saying I'm more aligned with the notion that the primal, primitive, if you will, nature of God is love. So I'd say it this way. God's love or God's power is also always exercised in love. God's omniscience is always exercised in love. God's understanding or wisdom is always exercised in love. To me, when you start separating those attributes without love as the primal, if you were, our, our primitive nature, you have some problems. Now, let, let me move on. There's another possibility. As I said to you before, uh, because of some punctuation issues here, I just want to suggest this to you. Now that you've memorized that, you can bring that back next week and you can quote that for us. Right? Now, Punctuation. There's no punctuation in the New Testament. Isn't there? It's understood grammarians and people that spend their life studying ancient languages and ancient Greek understand where signals, and I'm going to give you a couple of them here, signals and words, particles, prepositions, all those kind of things, uh, begin to indicate what's happening here. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, well, no, go on. i, I got to hurt. Uh, punctuation. Now, Mary Jane sent me this the other day. Uh, this is important. This punctuation matters. <laughs> punctuation matters here. <laughs> Mary, Mary Jane put in her email, punctuation saves lives. <laughs> Yeah. Punctuation. Let, let me show you another one here. Go, uh, hold your hand in John 9 and go to Ephesians chapter 1. Go to your table of contents. Find Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> this, is, this is a question. And, I, and I'm just trying to be honest with you to say there are people that would agree and disagree with it. But, but in Ephesians chapter 1, here's a matter of punctuation that, that has a significant meaning to it if we, as we read it. In verse, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. In other words, holiness is defined or understood as being in love. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. How? In love. Isn't that a great idea? That, that how would we be holy and blameless before God? Is in love. Or, if the punctuation is different, it goes this, just as He told us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Period. In love He predestined us to adoption. One of my Greek professors that was the RSV committee at Princeton when they did that Bible said, you know, you ought to preach two sermons on this. One with the period at the end of him, 
and the other one at, at within, uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, blameless before him, comma, in love, and the other way, blameless before him, period, in love. So, so, so the, that, that, those are the syntactical possibilities. Changes the meaning a little bit, doesn't it? Now, it doesn't change the meaning to where now all of a sudden the frog in your back pond is God and Jesus isn't him, okay? We're not talking about those kind of changes. We're talking about minor. So let me, let me suggest here, I think I've got this. I've got, I've got something here I want you to look at. Look at verse 3, back to John. Um, I think this may be on your sheet here. I wanted to put it on there because I want to walk through it here. It was neither this man sinned nor his parents. Now, in the translation there, it, it was neither he or his parents, but in order that, now they're translating that, it was so, it's the Greek particle hina. Hina is a purpose statement. It's meaning, here's the purpose. It, it, it's signaling. It's saying, it was neither of them, and you would put neither his parents nor he sinned. Period. But it, but it, in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, continue, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There are two, two words here. Hina, that begin that section. It, 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 it was so. That's how it translates in the American Standard. I'm not exa- I don't have the ESV with me. But it, that second verse there, it was neither his parents, nor, uh, neither him nor his parents, but it was so, literally, it, if you will, it, uh, it, let me find my place, it is in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the reason I'm suggesting you don't stop there with a period is because of the Greek conjunction day, D-E-I, that is a continuative particle. It means something needs to continue. That's where the signal is, what I'm saying. That's the signal that the Greek particle day, D-E-I, suggests that there needs to, that it doesn't stop here. And if you read it like that, to me it makes more, it says that the works of God might be displayed in Him. We must work the works of Him. So that's, I've got on your outline. So it was necessary that we must work the works of Him so that what? So that the work of God will be displayed in Him. Now, I want to suggest to you, if you're interested in this, you can read some other grammarians. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, who is a, a Reformed uh, scholar and writer for years and years, makes this suggestion, as well as others, that the punctuation may be the key to this. To instead of saying God made this guy blind so he could heal him and display his works, it was neither of his parents nor he did it, period. Stop. End of discussion. In other words, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to... Uh, believe that. Gee, I, I'm not going to accept that. But it was. But in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Do you see that there? I, I wrote that out for you, didn't I? On your handout. I'm just going to say to you, this has a good probability based on punctuation. That the period is misplaced. Final thought. I'd bring it, but in, in Codex Sinaiticus, which is uh, one of the top manuscripts that we have, one of those extant, or the largest. Codex just means book. Uh, it was found by uh, 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 Tischendorf uh, in the 1800s at the base of Mount Sinai, what we think is Mount Sinai. Uh, 
in a manuscript. And in the manuscript Codex Sinaiticus, there's a comma there, no period. Changes the meaning, doesn't it? I want to suggest to you that this uh, would be, in fact, the big question. What is the big question? Did this, guy, did this happen because this guy... Don't you hear people ask that question? Did this happen to me because I've sinned? Did this happen to me because I've failed? Did this happen to me? And Jesus won't get in that argument. He said, neither of them. It's not... What's the, pro, what's the issue here? The issue is we must work the works of God while we have time. I want to suggest it this way. That Jesus is, is redirecting the disciples to the task of doing the work of God while there is still time. Jesus is not trying to say, yeah, that's what happened to that guy. He's trying to say, we must work the works of God while we have time. That's why we're here today. Not because of God making this guy blind. His parents didn't sin. He didn't sin. But it is necessary. It's in order that the works of God would be displayed. We must work the works of God. You know, I think it's like this, if you will. One, one guy made this observation. He said, we look at the world and we say, well, look what the world is coming to. Look what the world is... Heard people say that lately? You know, look what the world's... You know what? Jesus is saying here, and His followers ought to be saying this, instead of look at what the world is coming to, say, look what is coming to the world. Look what's coming to the world. This Messiah, this Savior, this King who comes here to heal the sky. So that this God is interested in alleviating suffering, not causing it. This God is concerned about the broken not breaking them. This God is concerned about human suffering and being involved in it and saying, we must work the works of God while it's still daylight or while there's still time. The kingdom of God is here. This is the great incredible mystery that Jesus is telling us through this event, if you will. I'm going to suggest, you, you can go either way on this if you want to. I'm not going to follow my sword. If you want to go through life thinking that those things happen because God caused them, uh, I'll just uh, refer you to the Westminster Catechism. And that's okay, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be dismissive here. I'm saying that. I'm suggesting, though, there is an alternative here on the basis of grammar and punctuation that many of us have never thought about, never seen. What does it tell me? See, the big question, is God the source of problems? Is God the source of everything that happens? My students, I ask them to pray for me today uh, in my circle. I, my first week in class, I often... Win my students or lose them <laughs> quickly. Because I'll say to them some things like, look, you've probably thought that everything happens for a purpose, and I would agree with that. And some of them are really stupid. Huh? Yeah, I don't think you can retreat to the position that everything that happens is for somehow wonderful things. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says all, God works all things for our good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say everything happens is good. Nowhere in the Scriptures. So the idea here. So what if, what if you did this? What if you and I believe this? Oh, that's already there. What if you and I believe that God is present to work His works in a situation that looks difficult if not impossible? Jesus is saying, we're here to work the works of God. The big, the big if you will, question in life for people. Who caused this? Don't you meet people like that? Don't you meet people that are suffering under the load that did God bring this to me? I mean, the idea is, well, just bite your lip and deal with it. Maybe. Maybe. 
or to say, you know what, that's not what this passage is teaching us. It is teaching us, Jesus is saying, nobody sinned here, but that the works of God will be demonstrated. We must do this. Now, let me, let me take you to the next one here. The big offer. In this insight here, if you will, in my view, the big offer. Look at verses 4 to 6. We must work the work. Notice here in verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long it is day. Night is coming when no man will work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay and spittle, and applied it to the clay to the man's eyes. There's quite an offer here in my judgment. Is that Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to be involved in my work. See that the word we? We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of fascinated by that statement that Jesus invites these guys, invites us to be a part of His work in the world and in the day and that time. Notice the word we here. We're here. I have a, I have a, a friend who uh, uh, I've talked with over time. We've discussed things. And he'll often say, you know, I wonder when Christians and we will understand that God is asking us to enter into the work. God is asking us to be a part of the solution. God is asking us to participate, if you will, in this offer of being involved with Him. Augustine said it like this, and I, I think this is the tension that we feel. Without Him, we cannot. Without us, He will not. Did you hear that? Without Him, we cannot. Without us, He will not. I, I think, again, we got sometimes a, a, not a very carefully thought through understanding of God and the way He works. That we want to sometimes think, well, we'll just pray. And, there, and prayer is the first step. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying don't pray. I am saying, though, that we participate and we enter into this incredible work. Look at Jesus' words here. Jesus' words here are, you're involved. I'll get my notes here a second. He's, you're involved with this. We must work the works while it's still day. While it's still day. Because night's coming when no man will work. You know, I lost my voice a few years ago. Don't, don't say amen. Uh, I lost my voice a few years ago. Really badly. Uh, scared the living daylights out of me. Becky was going, no. <laughs> no. And you know, I, uh, it's not easy to not talk when you're me. And so I was writing. <laughs> See that? But I got to thinking, I thought, what if I don't get my voice back? What, what will be those last things I said? What, what, what will it be? What will some of those last... Listen, Jesus says something here. He invites us to be a part of His work, but He says, night's coming. There's going to be a time when no one can work. There's going to be a time when no one... There's no, there, there's no more, if you will, work to be done. And, and we go through life thinking, well, we'll do that next month, and I'm, I'm just as guilty of that as anybody else. But the idea of Jesus making this big offer to say, why don't you join me? Why don't, why don't we work together like this while it is still day? While you have time. You know, the greatest probably problem for all of us is we'll wait. We'll 
wait. We'll do that next week. We'll wait. Have you ever noticed how that when we keep doing that, we finally end up never doing anything? And so Jesus says He's included them. Let's work the work while it is still day. I, I was sort of amazed uh, when I thought about this because I thought about the, the great danger that I face or you face or we all face is when we say, well, I'll wait. When I was a pastor um, some years ago, there was a gentleman in my church uh, on Wednesday night. We were having church and I was teaching. His name was Wallace O'Brien. Wallace was a great guy. kind of helped build that church and, and help it be what it was and was a real, real solid guy. And Wallace uh, uh, was inquisitive and interested like you are and, and wanted to know and ask questions. And one night I was teaching and there were some new people there and some things going on. And, and Wallace said, uh, Cliff, I've got a question I want to ask about da-da-da-da-da. And I said, uh, you know, Wallace, uh, here's the deal. I, I'd like to answer that next week if you don't mind. We'll just wait on that and get that. He died Friday night. No, 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 I'm not trying to get you afraid or scared. But I have never forgotten that event. That I thought, I don't have all time on me. I, 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 don't, I don't have that. I think we come into a new year. Listen, I'm not trying to get you neurotic. I'm not trying to get you nervous. I am trying to get us to face the fact that we got to do what we're going to do while there's day. Because night is coming. While there is day, I'm not saying get neurotic, I'm not saying get frantic, I'm not saying get crazy. I'm saying if you're thinking about someone that you ought to go talk to and you ought to apologize to, go ahead and do it and don't wait. If you're thinking about a situation that you know where you could add some value to people's lives, if you could be involved in a ministry, you could be involved in helping some others, don't wait. Go ahead and do it. If you have a situation in your home where you said, you know what, we ought to deal with this now. Let's quit waiting. Let's talk about it. Let's broach the issue and let's deal with it. Instead of waiting... Until it's too late. And one day it will be. One day it will be. So Jesus said, let's work. Let's do what we're supposed to do now. So I'm going to ask you a question. Are you waiting to do something that you know or you understand or you think, I, I'd like to do that. I'd like to try that. I'd like to be involved with it. Or there's a relationship or a situation. You say, let's get this thing out of our hair. Let's, let, let's get it done. Let's get it finished. Let's get it over. Let's work at this or do what we need to do here. I read a story today, I, I just real quick. They asked Helen Keller. Remember her? Helen Keller's the blind lady and, and uh, you know, that was a movie star. No, <laughs> they made a movie. They made a movie. Come on. Uh, she was mute, couldn't speak, and couldn't see. And, uh, and uh, the, the Atlantic uh, interviewed her some, some years ago. And they asked her, you know, about her life and, and she had, was able to sign down and communicate. And they asked her, they said, Helen, what would you do if God gave you the miracle of three days of sight? Listen to what she said. On the first day, I would look deeply into the faces of my devoted friends and those who had loved me. I would look at the facial expressions, the animation in their face. I would look into the face of my beloved Annie Sullivan and all the faces of those who had loved me. I would look intently into their features and notice the texture and nuances of their faces. I should also look to like I should also look to look into the eyes of my trusting dogs 
that she had had in her life. When, she, when, when, when I read that, I thought, oh, oh, how many times do I look at people's faces and I don't see anything? Work. She said, on the second day, I would go to museums and theaters. I would look at what human beings have been able to create. I would take that opportunity to see nature and beauty and wonder throughout the world. To take that second day and see all that human beings have created and all the things that I've heard about and all the matters of that. Then on the third day, I would spend it in a workaday world. I would go to the places that men and women work, the businesses of life. I would go to the big cities and see the activities of men in New York. Yes, that would be my destination. And I would spend my day looking at how human beings work and serve and study together. What if you only had three days of sight left? What if I only had three days of voice left? What if I only have three days of influence? I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make you nervous except to this respect. we got a new year in front of us. And it won't be any different if we don't understand that the big offer that Jesus is making is saying, work with me. Work with me. Get in the game. Be involved. Be a part. And then this last thing. I, I'll go on. The big response. Whoa. The big response. Look at 7 to 12. And Jesus said to this man, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And, 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 and so he went and washed, and he came back seeing. That, that's remarkable to me. Here's a guy that goes. He was born blind. We don't know if he just had no eye sockets. We don't, but Jesus put some clay on his eyes with some spit. And you'll, you can read the rest of it. He goes and he washes like Jesus said. But I, I want to look at this in this regard. Why no, Jesus doesn't heal anybody like this ever before with this clay. And, and there is some suggestion that in the ancient world that spit and saliva has healing properties. There's the story of the ancient world where the emperor Vespasian, who was considered to be a god, a blind man came to him and said, put your spit on your hand and put on my eyes that I might see. Well, he didn't because he couldn't. <laughs> But the idea that there's healing properties, if you will, in that spit and in that clay. And he goes, but watch, watch what happens. The big response. What was the response? Notice what it says. So he went and did what Jesus said. Here's my suggestion for 2015. The big response is that to do what Jesus says. I don't understand it all. But this guy's miracle was because he did what Jesus said. Jesus spits on that clay, puts it on his eyes. There's all kind of medicinal questions and, and, and discussions about that. But what impresses me about this guy and what brings about the miracle is he did. I mean, he could have said, this is crazy. This is nuts. Nobody, nobody in Jerusalem spits in your eye, essentially. <laughs> Nobody in Israel does this kind of stuff. This is all hocus pocus. This is all magic. He just did what Jesus said. You know, would your world and your year and my year in life be any different if we decided that we were going to make, if you will, the big, if you will, response? That's not that big, but it makes all the difference in the world. When Jesus enables us to say, you know what, I'm going to do what you said. 
I talk to my students sometimes about this because I say, what does it mean to trust Jesus? I trust in Him. That means that when He says to do something, I do it. I don't understand it. I, I, I don't know all about it, but I do it. Remember the Old Testament story of Nahum, Naaman, who was the blind Syrian who God, the prophet Isaiah or Elijah told him to go and dip in the water seven times and he'd be well? He argued with himself about it. Well, this doesn't make sense. That's crazy. You know what? The big response is when we finally say to Jesus, I don't understand it. It's not completely clear to me, but I'm going to do it. I think my life, I think most people's lives would be radically changed if we suddenly came to the point that we knew that the big response for life is to do what He says. To do what He says. To be willing to say... I'm going to do, I'm going to act, I'm going to operate in that way to do what he says. You may know Dallas Willard's one of my heroes. And Willard uh, just died a, a, a few years ago. And he made some statements about this in this regard. That the idea of living for Jesus is the idea that his kingdom is present now. For me to be in the big offer, to be able to be with him in his work, but then to obey and follow Him and do what He says. I'll just say this. Everybody in the New Testament that believed in Jesus was called a follower. Not a believer. A follower. They believed. Because belief then acts out in following. So He goes and washes. And He comes back and He can see. People don't believe it. They don't accept it. But he tells them, the man called Jesus told me to go. Verse, look at verse 11. So I went. <laughs> How about that? That's, a, that's the big response. Gee, he told me to go to some. Verse 11. So I went. How about 2015? Is your response, is my response going to be to say, whatever you say, I'm going to do. Whatever you say, I'm going to go. Whatever you say, I'm going to obey. To me, those would be some insights that would make 2015 an incredibly different year. A year that might be a year of continual insight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, there's a lot going on in this story. And uh, we're thankful it was recorded and ask that you would help us as we work our way in this year with the insights that you might give us that we might live and practice and follow you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to know you more nearly each and every day. So we pray that you will help us in this new year with these new insights to be guided in our lives. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.